0: going to do about five different kinds of things, but um, basically what we're going to address right now are steps six and seven. And if you noticed on your program this morning, I put separating the women from the, or the girls from the women, and the men from the boys. And the reason I did that was because in step six in the 12 and 12, which you don't have in front of you, but it says this is the step that separates the men from the boys. And then it goes on to explain what that all means as far as separating the men's from the boys. Now, this is not in your big book. This is your 12 and 12, but you don't have this with you and you don't need it either. So I'm going to be just using this to refer to it in terms of um, what's steps 6 and 7. In the short time, which is 11 years and almost 6 months that I have, well, excuse me, 11 years and 5 months that I've been an Alcoholics Anonymous, I've made certain observations. Now, I wouldn't want to be taking anybody's inventory, but I do it all the time. Um... <laughs> You know, I pay, I notice sorts of things. I notice like there's what I call uh, the kind of. Sub- Who took my pen? My green pen. Anybody got it? Oh, oh, got it. It's okay, Clara. Then, can I have it. It's okay. I found it. Thank you. I've noticed that there are three types uh, of AA all over the place. No, it's not your job. This is it. <laughs> One is what I call the the, the basic. You know, the basic. Uh, part where, that you get in some particular groups. Now, I don't know anything about your group except I was here last year and I loved it, and I'm here this year and I love it, and I like any of you that I know, and so that's all I know. But I do know, though, all through the country, in Alcoholics Anonymous, that um, there's such a thing as different groups, different types of people in different places. and. Um, I'm telling you this for want of a better way of saying it because sometimes I don't know what a group is for, what, what they're doing, and I don't know what's inside of anybody's head. But sometimes in groups there's what I call um, the low life group. I mentioned it this morning. And that is where people come to the program, and obviously there are none of you here because you wouldn't be spending a whole Saturday this gorgeous day doing this. <laughs> but low life is when people come to the program and they, all they're really looking for is a relationship. Have you ever seen any people like that? You've never said that. It's only in California, I guess. That happens. California and chicken, and the <laughs> other energy kind of is going into relationships and figuring things out and breaking up relationships and getting into relationships. Yeah. And I call that low life AA. Uh, then there's the second uh, bracket that I have. This is all my own inventory that I take of AA all through the country and other countries too. I just got back. A few months ago I was in Australia, so I took inventory over there too, and I take inventory in, in uh, England and Ireland and all over. So anyway, the second group is what I call the ho-hummers, the ho-hum group. And they're the ones that uh, get sober, they're clean, uh, life is getting, doing a little bit better for them, uh, they've got their jobs back, and even maybe their husbands or relationships or whatever. Things are at least, you know, they've got food on the table and they've got a roof over their head and whatever. And then it gets kind of ho-hum. There's another word for that that you probably know, and it's called boring. <laughs> now, I don't know if any of you have ever experienced boring in AA. It's when people are not doing what steps six and seven are all about, which I'm going to be telling you about. And then the third type is what I've experienced with you last year, and I feel it this time too, is what I call the classy type. You know, you're real classy here, very serious about the steps, the program, your sobriety. And you're very serious about your conscious contact with God. And I call that classy. And I think that that's what I'm after myself. That's the, And I stick around the people that have that, that have that kind of, of stuff. They they have that happy, joyous, and free. Not 24 hours a day, maybe not 7 days a week, not maybe 12 months in the year. But they do have a certain energy or glint about them and life in them and vibrance about them that I want. I want that stuff. Like a positive attitude. Now we did a lot of work earlier today in changing this thing here. This is called our head. Uh, you know? Did you know that? And as I said to you several times already today, that my head would destroy me if it didn't need me for transportation. It really would. It would It would really be out to get me because in between my years, I can start up the greatest scenarios, and they're going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and they're this, and... and pretty soon I've annihilated several people off the face of the earth. That's what I do. I come from the north of Ireland, by the way, where they fight all the time. That's where I was born and raised. So I don't know how not to fight. We'll be talking about that tomorrow when we do step 10, because one of the promises in step 10 is that we cease fighting, <laughs> and we're in a position of neutrality. Can you believe that? Somebody like me, ceasing fighting. But um. Why I wanted to talk to you about the three types of AA in connection with um, Step 6 and 7 is that my experience has been that a lot of people in the program, they've told me this. That's how I know that. A lot of people have told me this. That they never get beyond Step 5. They never get beyond that. They, they think it's they do Step 4, which is, you know, your written inventory, and then they give it away, and then it's, goodbye, Charlie, I've done my bit. You know, I might do a little bit of 12-step work here and there, and maybe even a little bit of 13-step work, too. Mm. Yeah, a little bit of fun there in between. But having to do with 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, you know, there's a kind of a, oh, yeah, well, who needs that, you know, kind of goes off over their heads. So what we're going to talk about, just briefly, is the, the difference now here between the people who really merge into this whole business and get into working the steps and get the willingness to do some changing. Like it says in the back of your program, it says, the greatest revolution in our generation is the discovery that human beings by changing the inner attitudes of their minds, now, I don't believe you can do that if you don't do all the steps. That's my personal belief, and I think it's the belief of the people who wrote the steps because it, the 12th step says that as the result of having done all these steps, that the first thing we get is a spiritual awakening, more consciousness, more energy. Because as we get conscious, we get energy, and I don't think there's one of you here sitting in this room today that wouldn't want more energy. It's kind of like money, you know. You can't be, you can't. Have, too much energy, you can't have too much money, you can't be too thin. Is that the way it goes? Something like that. By changing the inner attitudes of their minds, therefore, we can change the outer aspects of our lives. Isn't that wonderful when we get to know that? Step six is about, as you know here, it's about being entirely ready to have God remove all of these defects of character that we talked about in steps four and five. But what happens when we get to step six? Oh, George has this in the tape. I want to say something bad, but it's okay. You want to turn it off for a second, George? I don't want my bad stuff to be on the tape. When I was in Serenity Hall, nobody wants to be angry enough to murder, well, sometimes I do, or lustful enough to rape, or gluttonous enough to ruin her or his health. No one wants to be agonized by the chronic pain of envy or to be paralyzed by sloth. Of course, most human beings don't suffer these defects at these rock-bottom levels. When you have escaped these extremes are apt to congratulate ourselves. What steps six and seven are about is the the subtleties, the hidden sorts of things in there. Now the book goes on to talk about it in the form of what some of you who might have come from a religious denomination, and in many religious denominations they call that the seven deadly sins. The, The book refers to the seven deadly sins. And the seven deadly sins are really what I call the subtleties of the program. Like in there, you know, the, the ones that don't look so bad. The, they look okay. And um, we know we're not doing anything huge, but there's little sneaky things that creep up on us. One of the deadly sins, I'm not going to go through them all, but one of them is, is, is the one, the first one, in fact, is called pride. Well, you know, there's, there's something kind of attractive, I think, about having a kind of a pride in your family and what you can accomplish or being responsible, or showing what you can do, or maybe even into bragging, or or power... We live in a kind of a a society, I think, where, you know, it's a go-get-it society. We're, We're almost challenged, kids are challenged to do that at a very early age. How am I going to, you know, get through this thing called living in this big, wide world? And so, it's hard for us to call it what it really is sometimes, and it isn't always that. But sometimes it can be ego taking over. The wrong form of ego. Like, as I've told you before, and you've heard, I'm sure, standing for edging God out. And we move in again. We take the stage, and we we get the, into the driver's seat again, and we start driving off, and we start playing God again, and, and we start being purposeful, and we start getting into a tremendous amount of self-reliance. Now some people think that if we're not self-reliant, that we're not responsible but we're, we in the program know the difference between being responsible for what we have to do and uh, relying totally and completely on ourselves. There's another one I'm just going to do a couple of these. Greed is another one and um, we could call that ambition. The, the sort of the dress-up name that we could call it. could be called ambition or getting ahead or did you ever see in anybody's bumper sticker the man or the person with the most toys wins you know Kind of subtle, isn't it? Like the acquisition of material goods, and it's called, I, I'm taking care of my family, you know, we call it, oh, I'm taking care of my family. We have a kind of an attitude that um, the more I collect in my possession, the better off I'll be, and so on and so forth. To all of these, to all of these, when we look at these defects, we need to ask the person that we talked about this morning after we talked about fear or one of the the defects or one of the the things in in step four, we need to say, God, what kind of a woman do you want me to be? It's basic. Or what kind of a man do you want me to be, God? And when we get to that point where we can honestly say that and mean it, I think then we can get as far as step six because we can then become entirely ready to have God remove all our defects of character. Things that get in the way of The clarity of God working in us. The clarity of the program. The kind of transparency. For we have no hidden agendas in there where we're cooking up something or figuring out something. We're clear. We're transparent. We've got a, a common problem and we have a unity of purpose and we're real sincere about doing that. Now I don't know where you're at with any of this, but I know for myself that it takes constant monitoring. I need to monitor this constantly, and monitor what goes on in my head on a a regular, regular basis. So we'll get to that, we get what we need all along, what we needed right from the beginning, but we get even another degree of this, another degree of willingness. I talked to you last night about the day in Serenity Hall of Whittier where I knelt uh, after I got home, and I knelt and I prayed, and I asked God to give me the willingness to change my attitude. That was the most miraculous thing I ever think ever happened to me. Because that was the beginning of a Complete psychic change in me. When I became willing to have God do some changing in me. That was marvelous. It was really a a wonderful uh, time. And it didn't happen suddenly. It's still happening. I have to become willing and willing and willing and willing. So step six is about continuing to become willing. And then step seven. I love telling you about this because that's when I found God. Now, I told you last night, and I've told you before, I'm sure you've heard this said by me before, that I have had lots of study and lots of uh, programming in the ways of God. I've done lots of scripture study, lots of theological studies, lots of history, all sorts of studies to do with the things about God. And I knew a lot about God here in my head. But I was never able to make my head and my guts meet as far as God was concerned. And while I, never be- I really never believed in a punishing God, but I kind of believed that somehow God had my name up here. I don't know exactly how I got this idea, but you know, I did good stuff. He put a little check mark, maybe, and then, oh, oh. Like, he was going to trick me or something. I kind of feel that I, I felt that God was going to trick me. And as I told you last night, my own arrogant belief in my relationship with the higher power was that God was God, and I was Mrs. God, and I was in charge. And that's just the way it was. I had no problem with that. But when I got inspired, step seven, after I became as willing as I knew how to be, I uh, knelt on my knees, and I tried to say the prayer that's on page 76. And if you have a book there, you might want to just take a little look at that. Page 76 of the big book. And it says, the very first word in it is my, and the next one is creator. And if, you, if you have it there, if you haven't, I'll be saying it anyhow. I want you to think about, you know, what God would say to you if you were to say that prayer and mean it. When we become willing, we, when we're ready, we say something like this. We say, my creator... I am now willing because we prayed for the willingness in step six, and we assume we got it. That you should have all of me, good and bad. Now I believe that uh, when I got to that point that I met God, and I want to describe this uh, religious experience that I had with you because it was marvelous. And if you haven't done step seven, I recommend it to you because it's absolutely a great freedom. What happened was um, I was meeting in my room. I have a nice nice bedroom in my convent where I live in California. I was kneeling down, and I said, My Creator, I'm now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. And at that moment in time, my God appeared to me. Now, He didn't appear physically. There was no physical God there that I could touch. And I don't know why God wouldn't appear to me, but it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> but uh, inside of my being, inside of my innermost being, inside of my psychic self, I saw like a father. I, or at least I had a sense of a father image. Now, remember I told you I grew up without a daddy, so I needed a father very badly. And it was like this father was saying to me, B, are you sure? Are you sure that you're now willing to have me, to, to come to me whether you're good or bad? And see, that was my problem. My problem was that I was trying to be perfect for God, and I just thought, that I didn't know that you could really come. I, my self-esteem was so low. My lack of confidence in myself was so terribly low. And, and I said to God, my creator, I'm not willing that you should have all of me good and bad. And my big father, God, who was huge and Irish, of course, um, <laughs> said to me in my innermost, in I said, are you sure? Are you sure that it's okay for you to come to me whether you're good or bad, or right or wrong, or true or false, or whatever, you know, is it, is it okay? And at that moment in time, I understood what it meant to be loved unconditionally by God. And that was a tremendous relief. And when I forget that today, I still go back and I do this very same thing all over again. And I recall and recapture that moment. And then I remembered that I spent most of my life uh, teaching other people about a God who had loved them unconditionally. A God who would love them no matter what. I used to, I still do this, I used to give retreats to people and tell them, you know, about God loving them no matter what. No matter what they did, it was okay because God loved them and He wasn't going to hoard up their guilt or hold it against them. And I, I, would, I would tell people about the forgiving God, but I never believed it inside of myself because I always felt like that God forgot about me. That I was this little orphan girl who looked like Holly Hobby. You know who Holly Hobby is? And, um,. That I had freckles, you know, and he didn't care for freckles, and red hair, and he wasn't real keen on red hair, and somehow he forgot about me, and I always felt just that little bit different, a little tad plum out there somewhere, not quite fitting, but always performing very well on the outside. That the outsides and the insides never matched, ever. And at that moment in time, when I, when I said that part of the seven-step prayer. Then I knew, I knew inside of me, what i had been teaching people forever. And what I've been teaching people was, you know, your God loves you so much that he would, he would call you by your name. He would call your name out. And he would say, Martha, call your name out. And he would say, Tom, call your names out. He, would, he, he knows about us all. So individually, he would call us by our name. And I would say to people, your God loves you so much that he would carve your name on the palm of his hand, you know. That, these are all from scriptures you probably recognize. And I, I would tell people that. And I would have them imagine a, a big God who is very merciful and very forgiving saying, Gosh, look at your hand. It's God's hand, and God's got germ written on that, on his hand. Or he's got Helen, Or he's carol. Or, you know, have people's names written on his hand. And then I say to people, you know, your God loves you so much that He would store up your tears. He would store up all your tears and He would put them into a little bottle. And every once in a while He would take out this little bottle and He would look at that and He would say, these are these are Pat's tears, you know, or these are Anita's tears. And, like, In other words, what I taught people was That God loved us individually with a kind of a real precious love. But I never felt that until I took step seven. Now, don't you think that this program of Alcoholics Anonymous is kind of classy? So that it could give somebody like me that kind of an insight and understanding? See, I told you yesterday, and I keep saying this, I almost missed this thing because I was so arrogant. I know you're not, but I was. Because I didn't think I needed this. I thought I could. You know, I could could stop drinking anytime I wanted to, and I could change my attitude anytime I wanted to, and none of that I could ever do. I could not do it without people like you. Another thing that I discovered was that God and I, just the two of us, God and I could never keep me sober. (laughs) Isn't that weird? But I needed you too, so God and I and people like you can keep me sober. Isn't that wonderful? I don't have to drink as long as I'm with you guys, but God and I just on our own can't do that. What are you laughing at, Ann? (laughs) Just discussing it in Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, and um, I wasn't there. <laughs> so it became very clear to me that um, this whole business um, was that, that God somehow would love me unconditionally. But what I need to let you know, too, is that I don't think I would ever have experienced that if I hadn't experienced the unconditional love of the group that I belong to. They love me no matter what. They loved me when I was doing temper tantrums, when I was doing arrogance, when I was... They, they would say to me, e, would, you like to, would you like to sit here? And I'd say, no, thank you. Would you like to go to lunch with us? No, thank you. Uh, they'd ask me questions, and I would say to them, this is an anonymous program. <laughs> oh, man, I had to make so many amends. Oh, God, in the program, say, it's awful. Awesome. I wouldn't, you know, and, and they would, you know, sometimes they would, oh, they would want to hug me. <gasps> wow that was the worst part and i would say, don't touch me you know I, I felt like a cactus plant do you have any cactus plants here in this part of the world There's lots of cactus plants out there in california in the desert areas and every part of the cactus plant you touch is, hurts you you know it's just sore it's terrible but i was like this big cactus just hurting all over hurting oh so sore my body hurted. my head hurt my back hurt my neck was hurting My legs, everything about me was hurting. And my heart, of all, was hurting the most. I was dying with pain. And I love it when you, when, when you know, I love it when I hear people talking about that pain again. Because it reminds me of what it used to be like for me. And and I remember that it's not like that for me all the time now. Now, there are days that I choose to stay in pain, you know, because I'm not willing to move out of it. But most of the time, I'm not in excruciating pain all the time. You know, I can actually... (laughs) I can actually not fight with Delta Airlines, you know, or whatever. Well, well whatever they might be, you know, it doesn't matter, it could not be anybody, it doesn't. But but I'm not in a lot of emotional pain most of the time. And that's miraculous for me. And that's because I've stayed around people like you. And I've allowed myself to be loved. And um, you might have read recently in, in some of your newspapers, we had in the Los Angeles Times, that they're trying to discover a drug now, which uh, will... You know, all you have to do is figure out, you know, before you're... Well, I guess when kids are still in their mother's womb, whether or not they're potential alcoholics or not. And then they can give them some kind of medication. And, you know, then we'll all be home free. There won't be any more problems. I don't know if you've read that. We're discussing it on our morning meeting. I go to... My home meeting is at 6 o'clock in the morning. If you're ever in California, by the way, make sure you get there. <clears throat> I'd love to meet you. And uh, so I leave home at 5.30 in the morning. Uh, I'm serious about this thing. cause it's But, uh... We were talking about it, and there was one time a newcomer and, and said, well, wouldn't that be great for the TikTok, whatever it is that they produce, and we wouldn't have to be bothered about this. But you know what I said to him? I said, you know what, Cliff? I said, Cliff, what would we do without the loving? What would we ever do without the loving? There would be no pill. that would ever help us to, to, to have good feelings about ourselves, like, you know, and that we need the support of one another. And so I believe that because I was able to somewhere along the line receive the love of the people in the program that I was then able to receive God's love God's unconditional love I believe that and so I think it's really important to stick close to the program to receive and to give uh, at the meetings and and to help newcomers so steps six and seven have been very important for me what we're going to move into now is a new phase we're going to move into an entirely new phase of uh, the little workshop we're about and it's called a new frontier emotional sobriety which is what I think some of you might want anyhow, right? Earlier this morning for any of you who joined us this afternoon I talked about the C word. Do you know what C stands for? Pardon? Codependency uh, a word that we don't talk about out loud like too much in the program because sometimes we get in trouble. But Bill W. wrote a letter, a letter on depression which is published in one of the books that we have. I forget the name of it now. It doesn't come to mind immediately, but it will. Um, And he talks about uh, his deep depression that he had after 20 years of sobriety. Can you believe that? After 20 years. And he was terribly, terribly depressed and he didn't know how to get rid of it. And he says such things like that, uh, you know, I think that many oldsters, old-timers who have put our AA bruise cure to a severe but successful test will find that they lack emotional sobriety. Now when I talk about classy sobriety, that's kind of what I'm talking about. I'm talking about my emotions sort of coming together. And he says, perhaps they will be the spearhead for the next major development in AA, the development of a much more real maturity and balance in our relations with ourselves, with other people and with God. And so my belief is that if our co-founders were alive today, that they would be jumping and dancing with joy because of the research and the understanding that's happening regarding this whole business about codependency. I believe that they would be thrilled because that's what he's talking about here. But there will be. We find out other ways because life goes on. You know, we get to read more, we get to hear more, we get to know more. We get to. We get people who are out there in the research field, researching more of people who react, people who came from dysfunctional families, how dysfunction works, what effect it has. We have people who have done statistics and research. You know, this real, I think this is very significant. This business about codependency, and I believe that basically. Inside of all of us, the the cry is, if if they would only do it differently, then we'd feel better. You know, if they would only just be a little different from what they. This is what he's talking about, and he says, since I began, I've taken immense walks in all these areas because of my failure to grow up emotionally and spiritually. And then he talks about, you know, it's difficult uh, to be ungrown up. you're whatever you are, 40, 50, 60, 30 years of age, and what was appropriate at 17 years of age as an adolescent is not appropriate then. So he couldn't understand why and what was rousing him and why he couldn't put all the 12 steps to work on all the other problems that he came up with. He couldn't understand that. And then he said, what does it mean it's better to be comforted than to be comforted, like the prayer of St. Francis? Remember the St. Francis prayer? And then he realized something that's unbelievable and, and certainly written in every codependency book that we have. He says, my basic flaw had always been dependence. And I think if he had known it, he would have said codependent. He didn't know. He, the, the, it was not a bird word, uh, buzzword of the fifties, you see. so. He says, my basic law had always been dependence, almost absolute dependence, on people or circumstances to supply me with prestige, security, and the like. Failing to get these things according to my perfectionistic dreams and specifications, I had fought for them. And when the came, so did my depression. Then Wilson was like you and I, probably are. He wanted what he wanted when he wanted it. Any of you like that here? I want what I want when I want it, okay? And so that was really hard for, for him when he came to that. And he says, I, I had over the years undergone a little spiritual development. The absolute quality of these fights um, dependencies had never been so starkly revealed. Reinforced by what grace I could secure in prayer, I found I had to exert every ounce of will and action to cut off these faulty emotional dependencies upon people, upon AA, can you believe that? Indeed, upon any set of circumstances whatsoever. Then I could only be free as friends as ha- had been. Emotional and instinctual satisfactions I saw were really the extra dividends of having love, offering love, and expressing a love appropriate to each relationship in my life. And then he goes on to describe how he did that. And the very end he says, Thus I think I can work out with emotional sobriety. If we examine every disturbance we have, great or small, we will find at the root of it some unhealthy dependency and its consequent unhealthy demand. Let us, with God's help, continually surrender these hobbling demands. Then we can be set free to live and love. We may then be able to trust-step ourselves and others into emotional sobriety. Of course, I happen to offer you a really new idea, only a gimmick that started me to unhook several of my own problems at depth. And nowadays, my brain no longer races compulsively in either elation, grandiosity, or depression. I have been given a quiet place in bright sunshine." And it was only when he found out that he was able to do that. So, this afternoon, I'm going to have you do something that you may not feel real comfortable about doing, but as I told you, you can talk about me when I leave tomorrow, okay? Don't tell me when I'm here, because I'm real sensitive. What I'm going to uh, invite you to do this afternoon, and I can't make anybody do anything, but I'm going to tell you this, that if you do it, it's going to be wonderful for you. And I presume you've given up this sunny day to give this the best shot you have, right? So I'm going to invite you to take this piece of um, paper. You'll get it. You'll get different colors. I don't know what, what colors they are. I think they're all the same, actually. To take this pink sheet, and I want you to spend some time on your own with this. I want you, this is for you, so you can keep it and mark it up and you can write yourself notes and you can underline some of it and you can just take a look at it. And I want you to think about this real clearly. And maybe on the very back page, if you have a pen or pencil, you might want to answer this question. this is the only time you get to play God now this whole weekend, okay? You will already have said the prayer God, what kind of woman do you want me to be? or Father or higher power however you address God however you address your higher power and on the back of this paper here I want you to write down what you think God would say to you what do you think God would say to you you know what kind of a person you don't have to write it in sentences if you don't want to nobody's ever going to see this this is totally for you you can write it in words you can think of words that would come to mind when you think what kind of a person man or woman that God wants you to be before you do that, though, I want you to take this article that I'm giving you to read and mull through it and, you know, like go outside and think about it or find a, a little corner here, you know, find one of the rooms, you can, whatever you want to do. And you're going to be given a good lump of time to do this in now. You're going to, you know, this is going to be a good space of time. Okay? So I want you to assemble back in your groups at 3.20. Um, so you'll have all this time by yourself now. This is a wee bit hard. Some people find that a wee bit hard. Spend some time alone with God and just mull things over. Kind of, yes, where am I at now with God and the program and whatever is asked of me. And then report back to your groups and the groups are marked on the top of this. You'll see where you are, you know, group one, two, three, four, five and six like this morning. And um, be with your group leaders then until four o'clock. And then we'll have a short break at four, or maybe at ten minutes to four or so, and you don't have to do any affirmations at the end of this group. I just want you to share what you got out of reading this in your group, or some highlight, or some word, or some sentence, and if you want to, you, you can share what you think, what kind of a person you think God wants you to be, but you don't have to. You can keep that personal if you want to. I also have appended on the back of this the Prayer of St. Francis, if you'd like to take a look at that. Okay, can somebody help me now to pass these? Thanks, Carol. And, said the bad word out loud, so I hope I didn't upset or shock any of you. Um, You might have heard it once or twice here in Dallas. Um, But anyway, what I'd like to do before I get into just briefly going over the promises that we all call the promises, we're going to do that and then we're going to finish for the day and resume again tomorrow at 9.30. Before I do that, I just want to do a little recap thing. For your continued reading and information on that C word that I mentioned a few times here today, and that I believe is, Absolutely filled in the big book. It's everywhere. That, that the reference to that whole business is from page sixty, sixty-one, sixty-two, sixty-three. All about codependency and about uh, you know people not doing it the way we thought it would. They should. And then for those of us who drank or used, we did that because we couldn't stand the pain. Or as they say in Australia where I was this last year, the pine. The pine was too great. And they would say nine the pine. So we have to start learning to mine the pine. And when we do that, it starts getting better. But those of you who might want to do further study in this, and I know you're awfully, I know you have a lot available to you here in Dallas, and I know some of you have done a lot of study in all of this, and, and I'm not representing any, any book company or any, I know nothing about anything, so I'm not, this is not, a, I'm just telling you, you can get further information. What I find found most helpful for myself and the groups that I work with um, are two books uh, one is called Codependent No More which I'm sure many of you have read and the sequel to that which is called "Beyond Codependency by um, Melody Beattie now The Codependency has some very good hints and tips for living and uh, she does a whole chapter on boundaries boundaries meaning that where for you end and I begin you know sometimes we don't know when we're overstepping we don't know when we're into a non-caring attitude or mode and when we should be really helping out or whatever and when am I not supposed to be cluttering around somebody and when am I supposed to say no and what am I, you know and she does a real good thing on that she does an awfully good chapter also on recycling and she prefers to call it recycling rather than relapsing because she said when we say relapse we automatically mean that we are back to square one and we have lost out on everything we ever knew and it's not the same in this whole area when we talk about recycling it means that we just simply do a couple of things we say, Whoops, I'm into it again I'm into my codependency again I'm into looking to people, places, and things to fix me, or I'm looking to do people pleasing again. And we just simply acknowledge it, or like I said a moment ago, we name it, we do it, we we acknowledge it. This is the end of side one. Please turn your. And uh, then the second thing we do is um, we do what we do the least well, and that is we nurture ourselves. Most of us do this real well. Most of us do. That's, our, that's what we do best of all. We abandon. We abandon ourselves best of all because we don't think we were worth very much anyway to begin with. And uh, they always abandoned us, we thought, or we felt. And um, we do that to ourselves first. We abandon ourselves and we get, we get into the I should have, I could have, I must And we get into beating ourselves up again when we need to really nurture ourselves. Uh, Then, of course, there are all kinds of books on the addictive society and when society becomes an addict and all of that, which is all good material in terms of looking to see what kind of a mindset you come from. What if you came from a dysfunctional family and you didn't come from a dysfunctional family, did you move into a dysfunctional relationship or are you in a dysfunctional job? (laughs) I consider the the Catholic Church to be the greatest dysfunctional uh, church there is. So It really is. It's tremendously dysfunctional but it's okay it's okay for us to say that and to uh, you know I mean we really are screwed up and um, I mean there's all these shoulds and woods and guilts and all of that and, and even the people who, who are working on trying to to move out of that it's really hard uh, and it's hard to know the, the times and the places and the situations um, one book uh, that I think is uh, exceptionally good is by Anne Wilson Schaaf some you might have read some of her book, books and uh, she's written a book on when society becomes an addict And she ascertains that 96% of the population is um, codependent, or dysfunctional, and the other 4% are zombies, they wouldn't know the difference anyway, they're going going to die wondering no matter what. You know, in Ireland we say, if if somebody's curious, we say in Ireland, uh, we don't tell them everything that we need to to tell them, we're very reticent about that, and uh, for an answer we would say, you'll probably die wondering. So the 4% will die wondering, and 96% of these people uh, will um, are probably in some kind of a codependency mode or an addictive mode. And she talks about the addictive process as well as the substance addic- addictions like alcohol and drugs and nicotine and caffeine and sugar. They're the five uh, substance addictions that she identifies. And then she goes into all the process addictions like work, perfectionism, control issues. Uh, the need to be right, the need to be empowered the need all of these all of these issues and she talks about an addictive process. We have one of the people in our convent who is uh, in the addictive process and that she loves to clean all the time. God she drives you crazy she 's always cleaning the windows and the floor and shining everything up you know she's crazy and uh, i'm t- keep telling her she's a, she's an addict and she doesn't quite get it um <laughs> But there's great, that's what I'm talking about here. I'm not meaning to upset any of you, but I'm talking about the great research there is that we'll do anything, whether it's clean doorknobs or or get into work or get into relationships or booze or drugs, we'll do anything rather than feel. And what these people are right about this today, they call it non-living. And anything we do that's non-living takes away our energy. It robs us of our energy. And and we, we can't get the verve and the the, the um, enthusiasm the enthusiasm that we need to do to go ahead and do God's work. Just one little tip in case you're wondering if you're codependent or not and uh, uh, you probably aren't but if you are uh, Diane Fassel has written one of those books with um, Ann Wilson Schiff this is what she says she says that um, first of all a codependent assumes assumes that they know what's best for somebody else they, know, they make that assumption secondly they make they make a decision that they're going to do something about that. They make a decision. Then they set about doing it. And then they do it. You know, to help, to fix, or to manipulate or maneuver. And then the fifth one is the crunch or the punchline, I think. And then when they do that, to help somebody else out, they sit back waiting to be thanked. That's, that's where, the, where the crunch comes. That's the difference between somebody who does something for fun and for free. You know what I mean? We talk about examining your motives. When you think, oh my God, uh, for all the thanks I got. If any of you are literature scholars or English scholars, you, some of you might have read some of Shakespeare's plays. And he's written a play called Julius Caesar. And uh, Julius Caesar was killed uh, at the hand, I think, of Brutus. And Mark Anthony, when he's delivering his big speech, he, he, he talks about... it wasn't really the the stab in Julius Caesar's heart that killed him, but it was the ingratitude that he died from, because he was his friend. And he said, Ingratitude, the unkindest cut of all. And he said, It quite vanquished him and burst his mighty heart. And that happens to us a lot. You know, the ingratitude quite vanquishes us and bursts our mighty hearts. I mean, don't they know that I've gone to all this trouble and I've done all this for them and I've spent so many nights... That's particularly uh, prevalent in family situations. I would especially think it would have to do with, with children. You know, all the all the stuff I did and all the money I spent and all the time I put into this and ingratitude is all I got in the end. So a good little test is if you assume that you're, you know what's best for somebody... You make a decision, you're going to get in there and move it and shake it, and then you uh, do it, set about doing it, and then you do do it, and then if you sit back waiting to get thanked, then you know you're a codependent. Now, if you can do the first four things and not expect the thanks, then you're doing it for fun and for free. And that's the difference between being into that mode and doing the, the prayer of St. Francis, living out the prayer of St. Francis. It's better than to be ill you know, when he's doing it for fun and for free. Now, before I move into the promises of Step uh, seven or 8 and 9, which are on 83 and 84 in your big book, uh, I I would like to invite, and I have one question here. Do you have any clarifications or questions you'd like to ask? Because um, sometimes people do as they go through a day like this. But before you do, I'll, I'll mention this question first. Where, how and when do you work the steps? Huh. My sponsor stays for now, 1, 2, and 3. But sometimes I feel I do a little of all of them every day and that's probably true um, you know there's various opinions about the way the steps ought to be done and there's Dr. Paul oh do you know Dr. Paul anything who's written in the big book doctor addict and alcoholic he's a very good friend of mine and his uh, premise is that you know if you do steps one two and three then move on to four it doesn't say that you have to wait for a year or six months or two years Some people think that that's a real rule of thumb, that you don't get into your fourth step too soon. Uh, I always tell the people I sponsor, I sponsor a number of people, I always tell them, if you've done one, two, and three, and you kind of think you can understand it, and you you feel kind of like that you're wanting to move on in this program, get on and write something fast, because at least you get some of that initial froth of that guilt and stuff out. Now, you probably have to do another one next year, but get what you can get out now as best you can. So I encourage them to do it as fast as they can. Uh, and the same with step five, and to move in. And yes, I think that probably we do little bits and pieces. But my own experience of, of working with people, and uh, and being around the program a bit, and you know, traveling a lot, and meeting different groups in different states in this country, and in other countries too, uh, is that a lot of people do end at step five. They don't do those in between ones, you know? Maybe they do even some of the amends, but they don't do six and seven to the extent that I think that maybe it's there for them. So that would be my answer, somewhat to that question. Would anybody else have any questions at this point they would like to ask, or any comments, or oh, disagreements? God, I love a fight! From the north of Ireland, you know. Yes, Helen. Uh, Sir, I would like to say that I'm thrilled to be here today. For one, and I like to know, do you have any tapes, or have you written any books? If you have, I like to have everyone. To... Oh well, no, I haven't written any books, Helen. I don't have time for that because when I'm when I'm traveling, I do an awful lot of reading. But I'm usually preparing for the next thing I'm going to be doing, and I don't prepare for this now because I have that done, but I'm doing all kinds of other things, like I'm giving a, a workshop in England the week after next on codependency, and I'm giving a... I'm starting to think about a new type of workshop or retreat for my... This will be my third i I've been here twice now. I've been to most of the places that I've been to twice, and I go almost every single weekend. So. What I, I'm going to do now is the conscious contact with God retreat is going to be called an 11th step retreat, and we will be doing like steps three and step 11 only. And there will be a time during that time to do, uh, to learn prayer and meditation, and to practice it, and to have a lot of quiet times and silent times. And I think what I'd like to do with that is limit it to a smaller number, and you know, do it that sort of way. Or maybe I don't know how I'm going to do that exactly yet. But um, no, I haven't written any books. I have written a couple of articles on other topics. Um, but um, and, my, and George has my tapes of this particular weekend and the tapes that I get taped as I go through the country speaking at conventions they're all over the place and I'm embarrassed to listen to them myself I hate listening I, I die I, never, I don't ever accept my own tapes from anybody anymore because I hate listening to myself <laughs> I really do any further questions? okay well, we're going to move in real fast now, because I'm going to let you go to about a quarter off. We're going to move in real fast to take a, a quick look at the, the promises. Now, I want to tell you about this. This is a very really special story. Um, if you look at page um, 83 there, if you have your book, and put your thumb, if you want to, and page, in, into page 76, and notice the fatness of the pages between pages 76 and 83 that means there's quite a bit of information in this book on steps eight and nine, which are what we call the amend steps. And uh, we make amends for the harms we have done. And we get to know, as we go through our sobriety, we get to know of other people that we have harmed that we haven't thought of yet. And if you don't know about it now, don't worry about it. Uh, you You will know. God will let you know. I just experienced that three weeks ago. I remembered a young sister we had in our community that I had been her boss at one time. And she left. She left finally. But she left with a lot of unresolved problems. And a lot of them were to do with our, her personality and mind. And I was driving on the freeway, or I'd been to a workshop on consciousness. And the people who were giving this workshop said, at the, at, at the, when they were doing the workshop, they said, you know, when you get into a state of consciousness, you'd be surprised that suddenly a memory will come to you, and you'd be, you'd be wondering, where did that come from? I haven't thought about that in years. I was driving home from this workshop and I was in deep traffic on the freeway and I thought of Patty, is her name, Patty. I thought, oh my god, I really need to make peace with Patty. Now she hadn't bothered me, I hadn't kept awake at night over her or anything like that. And, and I knew if I gave it two thoughts that I wouldn't do it. You know, saying, oh, that's not a very good idea, oh no. God knows where she is, I won't be able to find her, but I, I knew I had her phone number though. And so uh, I went home and I did it almost immediately. And it was a most delightful experience. I said, Patty, I want to say this to you for me, not for not for you. I said, I want to tell you that I'm sorry for any pain I've ever caused you and that you didn't ever resolve. And she started to cry. It was a magnificent uh, reconciliation. And I did too. I cried too. And I said, you know, I didn't know how to do it any better th- then th- than I did. And now I'd like to tell you that I'm sorry for anything that I... Had. And what I was talking about mainly was my driven personality, you know, the way I expected and demanded. men. And these were in my drinking... that was in my drinking days. And and I had forgotten about her somehow. And she was really glad that I did that. And I'm hoping to be in further contact with her. And so that sort of thing gets to be revealed. So I would draw your attention to the fact that there's a lot of pages there from page 76 to 83 that talks about this long period of reconstruction ahead and sometimes we don't know it all all at once we don't. We might know the initial people to whom we have to make amends but we don't know all of the people to whom we have to make amends for a long time and maybe that's just as well because the God I understand is a very gentle God and doesn't ask too much of me too soon because I would die I would die if I had to know it all at once um, it also tells us some good recipes on how to do amends it sometimes tells us that it's not smart to make amends in the wrong places at the wrong times uh, we have to be tactful and sensible and considerate And and all of those things. I have to tell you, though, that what happened to me, my my very first uh, sober Christmas, it was the Christmas of 1978, and uh, I had always volunteered to do the cooking in the convent for Christmas, and uh, the sisters thought that I like to cook, which I do, but I don't like it that much, but what I I like to do is cook with a little you-know-what, and um, if you're Irish, or maybe Italian, I don't know, but if you're Irish anyway, you can't cook with that little bit of the quaker there beside you, sipping on it and tasting it and putting it into the sauces and this and that and the other and the Christmas pudding. And and the, the people in my environment, one of them was the, was the pastor, and he had been hunting in Mexico, and he had hunted some geese. And so I was cooking geese that Christmas. On Christmas morning, it dawned on me that I would not be able to have my regular beverage, you know, because... They told me that I couldn't drink, although I had said in my head I would be drinking for Christmas. I did say that. And uh, the lady that I told this to, unfortunately, or fortunately, she said, B, we don't do Christmas until the 25th of December. thought that was a very wise thing she said. And this is about December the 11th, I told her that. So the only reason I wasn't drinking Uh, was because I didn't want them to know that I couldn't do it. You know, I was just holding on with my toenails. It was just so hard for me not to drink. The obsession for alcohol didn't leave me until I became willing to follow the program as it was designed instead of a la Sister B, which is what I thought was the only way anything should be done. So anyway, um, this Christmas morning I was in our kitchen and oh my gosh, I didn't know how I was going to do this Christmas dinner. And I remember the women had said that there was going to be a, a meeting. Uh, in the women's group and that if anybody needed to they could go at 10 o'clock and so I was new and so I decided to go to this woman's meeting and there were only five of us and we didn't have a a room to go to because the place was closed that day but we sat in somebody's car five of us I believe and one of the women had brought a, a a flask or a thermos of coffee and we had some goodies and at that meeting they read the promises on page 83 and 84 and I, I just couldn't believe this. You know, we are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. I said, not me. I won't know anything new because I've known all the chances I've been given for everything. And I didn't believe that I couldn't regret the past or wish to re- shut the door on it because I was positive that I would regret the past. And I knew I'd never understand the word serenity and that I would never know peace. And I figured I'd gone down the scale so far that I could never be beneficial to anybody. And I was feeling so useless and so full of self-pity that I never, ever thought that it would ever disappear. And I was so encased and engrossed in my own self that I never thought I'd ever get out to be able to think about other people. And I was just so unhappy and I was in such pain. And I certainly did not believe that my whole attitude and outlook on life would change. I just didn't think that that would happen. And I didn't think that my fear of people and of economic insecurity would ever leave me. I was terribly afraid of people when I came to the program first. I was afraid to go to the market even. I was afraid to go to church. I was afraid to be in crowds and I was afraid to be by myself. I was so fearful. I was afraid to drive and I had driven for years but I just lost all my confidence and I, I was afraid to drive on the freeway. This is sober, you know, I was shaking most of the time and you can't get very far in California if you can't drive because we don't have very much in the way of public transportation and so I was petrified and I said to my sponsor one day, how do I overcome the fear of driving? and she said B she said what you do is you have to do the footwork and I said what's that and she said get in the car and turn on the key and the ignition and go and go she said that's the footwork and I said but what happens when I'm getting on the freeway and all these people will be merging the same time as me and she said B there will always be room for you if you put your hand out and believe that God's beside you you know I've, I've found that to happen there's always room for me Always room, if if I believe that, if I'm not doing this thing all by myself. And then we will suddenly, we will intuitively know how to handle situations that used to baffle us. I love that one, because um, in the work that I do, I don't do this work all day long. This kind of work, um, I work in the diocese uh, <laughs> in Orange County, and that means I I'm surrounded all day with with uh, bishops and priests. And then I go out there to the field and I serve the sisters. That's what I do for a living. But most of my administration work is working with clergy. And um sometimes I find that very hard because they come from a, a male dominated society and um and I believe that um they don't treat me equally sometimes. And so I find I have to do what I call is raise their consciousness every once in a while, like every every half an hour.
1: But uh, you know,
0: um I get into situations that used to baffle me there. I, I, part of the job I do actually is called conflict resolution. That's what I do. I help people to resolve conflict. And um, sometimes I'm, I am in situations that I think, God, you know, how can I do this? This is going to be a real toughie. And then suddenly, you know, I, I'll get this, we'll be talking about this a lot tomorrow, this sharpened sixth sense that we get through prayer and meditation. Is that intuition that as our energy level increases we get intuitive, we get much more intuitive. And God speaks to us and shows us and teaches us how to handle situations that used to absolutely bowl us over. We get to walk through situations, we get to be in things that we could never have done, and only God can do that. And then suddenly, this is a great word, we will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And what I discover is that there are just millions and millions of suddenlies that happen all the time. Suddenly, you know. And suddenly, oh my goodness, I did not think I could ever do that. I, just, I didn't think that it would ever, ever be possible. But before I finish that, I would like to, pay, uh, to draw your attention to the very first part of that paragraph on page 83. I think the most important part is at the very beginning. It says, if we are painstaking about this phase of our development. In other words, this, this really doesn't come to us for free. We do have to work the steps, you know, we really do have to do all that, that stuff ahead of time in order to get this. And people say, Well, I don't know about this new tree when you have it. No, no we haven't done steps one through, you know, eight and nine. But the operative word there is if. If we're painstaking and this phase of our development, you know, that it's ongoing. There's nothing there's nothing finished about us. We'd definitely be amazed before we're halfway through. And then are these extravagant promises? Uh-uh, we don't think so. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. And the great promise there is they will always materialize if we work for them. You know, if we give it our all. But my observation has been of you people today is that you are. You're, you're that kind of people here. You're giving it your all. You're very serious about this thing. Very serious to give up a Saturday that's beautiful, and I understand it's one of the few nice weekends you've had in a while. You're very serious about applying the principles of the program to your lives and applying the steps and applying the promises. I was terribly touched by you this afternoon as I went around. You're just kind of walking around there and you're sitting seriously on your own and you're writing stuff and reading. And you're in your groups very seriously sharing the fruits and the gifts that this program has has, um, done for you. And and I feel that only good things can happen for you. And I think that everything that we've been promised will materialize for you especially because you're working. You're working very hard for this. And so to conclude this afternoon, this is what I would like to invite you to do with me. I would like to ask you to recite with me the promises on pages 83 and 84. And then I would just like to tell you that tomorrow we will be resuming and doing steps 10, 11, and 12, the promises of those, uh, at 9.30 in the morning. And I hope that you'll be there. And I hope that God will continue to do great things for you because already great things are happening. Uh, I'm full of energy now um, I, I feel very lightened up and very delighted with you all and um, I just know that God's working it's, um, it makes me feel very um, makes me feel very grateful and very small all at the same time. did you ever have that feeling where you feel the you know God says to me on a regular basis as I get to do this sort of thing, God says to me, B, all you have to do is show up. That's all I have to do. I have to get my stuff together and get on the airplane and get and show up and do this thing. And then I get to watch God showing off through you guys. And that's, that's astonishing to me. It's astonishing to see how this thing works. And God doesn't always need me for him to work. Isn't that nice? God works through all of you, through the way you share in your groups, through the way you are, through something you've heard or said or that you've read for the first time maybe and um, I just get goosebumps thinking about the goodness of God and how this program is designed and how it's inspired and so let's just do that let's read the promises of uh, on page 83 beginning at if we are painstaking if you have a book if we are painstaking about this phase of our development we will be amazed before we are halfway through we are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past, no wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. Our feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in self esteem and gain interest in ourselves self so speaking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to back us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are both for among us Sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, they will always materialize if it will work for them. God bless all of you, and I love you very much. Thank you, and I'll see you tomorrow. Thank Thank you.